Jobcast, still stuck in the solar system, with Indy Leclerc, Kat McGuire, Tim O'Brien, Mark Perver and Joe Zunz. The Jodcast, September 2013 Extra Edition. Hello and welcome to The Jodcast. I'm Kat and joining me in the studio today are Indy and Joe. Hello. Hello. Hi guys. Regular listeners of the Jodcast will recognise Joe's voice as you've done an Ask an Astronomer, is that right? I have, and I was interviewed once as well. Oh yeah, you did a, a job by as well, did. didn't you? But as this is your first time presenting, some of our listeners may not know you. Would you like to give us a bit a bit of a recap on what you do? And Absolutely. So I'm a cosmologist. Uh, I work on something called weak lensing or weak gravitational lensing. And when I want to sound cool, I tell people I'm making the biggest map that's ever been made of the whole universe. And when I want to sound sort of sympathetic, I tell people I draw ellipses around small blurry objects, which are hopefully galaxies. Very interesting stuff. Thanks for that, Joe. In the show this time, Mark talks to Dr. Alvaro Sanchez Monray about high mass star formation. And Tim O'Brien answers your astronomical questions in Ask an Astronomer. But first, before all of that... Indy talks to Evan Keane about magnetic fields and pulsars in this month's Jodbite. For this month's Jodbite, I'm with Dr. Evan Keane from the University of Manchester. Hi, Evan. Hi. Could you just introduce yourself and uh, tell us a bit more about what you do um, in terms of research? Uh, well, I'm Evan Keane. I am currently based at the Swinburne University when this gets broadcast. Actually, as we're recording this, I'm based in Manchester, um, where I've been working the last few months. I research pulsars and transient radio bursts and things of that nature. Okay, so uh, energetic objects that sort of emit bursts for short periods of time then. Exactly. Globally speaking. Exactly. So we've got you on this month because uh, there's a very interesting new paper that's been published in Nature this month. Could you tell us a bit more about your involvement in that? Well, pulsar astronomers, um, we've been trying to find a pulsar near the galactic centre for a long time, for years decades maybe, um, with little success. Um, there's many reasons why we'd want to find this. We can use it to um, measure the strong gravitational field next to the supermassive black hole in the centre of the galaxy, which has lots of sliding implications. Um, but despite many really well-organised searches, we we found one, but it was by accident <laughs> a few months ago. Okay. So while everyone was at uh, an astronomy conference in Germany, um, an X-ray satellite in space uh, called SWIFT noticed uh, an X-ray flare uh, coming from the direction of the galactic center, and that made everyone really excited. Another X-ray telescope started monitoring it very heavily. That telescope is called NuSTAR, which is a new satellite. Okay. And it noticed that the X-ray emissions from this thing, whatever it was, ruffling in the galactic center, were periodic with a period of 3.7 seconds. So that made all the pulsar people really excited because that's very similar to the rotation period of a pulsar. Okay, could you maybe explain the link between the X-ray observations and the the pulsar itself? Like, so the pulsar emits X-rays as well as radio. Yes. So, well, actually, if you look for the thermal emission from a pulsar, it's in X-rays because the temperature of a pulsar is about a million Kelvin, and okay. anything that's a million Kelvin, its its color is X-ray. But this had a really bright flare in X-rays, okay, for reasons as yet unknown. But it show it, it was able to show the underlying uh, spin period. Uh, pulsars are usually studied in the radio, 
And in fact, you can do uh, most things in the radio. So this got everyone with a big radio telescope in the world started pointing at the galactic center to see if they could find this thing because you can um, you can do uh, more useful astrophysical tests in the radio. Mm-hmm. So we we did that uh, using. Uh, the Lovell Telescope at Jodrell Bank, and the yep. Effelsberg Telescope in Germany, and in fact, many other telescopes scattered around the world. Right, so everyone started hunting for this uh, this elusive pulsar. Yeah, so for the burst went off at the end of April, and for the first two weeks of May, I don't think, there was a lot of astronomers that didn't sleep much. <laughs> um, and everyone was just excitedly observing, and when the Galactic Center had set, everyone was doing calculations and trying to analyze <laughs> their data quickly before the next night. Okay. And so... What did you guys find? Well, happily, we found um, we found the pulsar. What ha- there was actually a bit of a delay. So between the X-ray flare becoming really bright, we immediately looked in radio and didn't see anything. And we were slightly disappointed, like, oh, okay, maybe we can't see it in radio. Okay. And there's a number of reasons why you might not see it, which I can go into. Yeah, please do. <laughs> um, well, there's a lot of stuff in the galactic center, a lot of ionized material. And it right. co- there's various effects with that. Um, such as dispersion and Faraday rotation. So what do I mean by that? Well, if when radio waves come from, say, the galactic center towards us, they go through a lot of obstacles in the in the way in space. Yeah. Space is not empty. Sure. It has lots of particles and dust in that. The short wavelengths tend to be able to hurdle these obstacles easily mm-hmm. and get through, whereas the longer wavelengths barge into everything and, yep. and get delayed. So there's a delay between the long and the short wavelengths. And this delay can be so long as to smear the signal out and basically erase it. Okay. Um, so that's one reason why you might not be able to see something in radio. So that's known as dis- dispersion. That's dis- known as dispersion, dispersion measure. Right, okay. Um, yeah, so it's quantified by this number called dispersion measure. And everything that we had been able to see r- roughly near the galactic center had a very high value of that. So that's kind of, we were thinking, oh, maybe we can't see it because of that. Okay. Another thing is um, Faraday rotation. So... The light is a wave, and usually it just propagates along like a, well, like a sine wave in a plane. Yep. But if there's a magnetic field or anything like that, the wave will start to spiral, and it'll do a cork corkscrew type, uh, okay, pattern. Yep. And that can also make it uh, difficult to detect. Okay. Um. So we d- we thought we didn't see it immediately. So we thought, oh well, maybe these obscuring effects are. are are working against us. Or as pulsars are kind of like, well, cosmic lighthouses are described, we could have been unlucky in that the lighthouse wasn't pointing at us. Mm-hmm. So we thought, okay, sure. maybe it's bad luck. But being persistent astronomers, we thought, well, let's look again the next night, you know. <laughs> I mean, maybe maybe we'll see it. And we did. Uh, it, there was a bit of a delay, but it came on quite, and it was quite a bright radio source. Um, it was it was so bright that uh, it was was actually surprised, and we were almost doubting it. Oh, wow. Um, um, because it was just too perfect. <laughs> um, but it's, it was, it was there, and, um, we were able to measure it very well. And we measured these dispersion effects and the Faraday rotation effects to be absolutely massive. Right. Um, the largest known of, of any object by quite a bit. Yet, but they weren't, weren't, uh, so large as to make them impossible to measure. Right. Okay. So these were the key measurements we were able to make with, um, Observations spanning several weeks with many radio telescopes across, around the world. So, what did that? What did I, What did you get out of that? Basically, what well, does that tell you? What we get out of that is you remember I, I mentioned this corkscrew effect called the Faraday rotation. Yep. Well, the waves spiral more and more if the magnetic field is higher or less if it's lower. Okay. So you can you can basically unwind 
the emission and straighten it up uh, when you measure this effect. And from this, you can you can tell how much magnetic field the radiation has passed through. Right. And then you can say, oh, right next to the galactic center, the magnetic field is this value. I see. And it just so happens that this this uh, pulsar that we found is very close to the black hole in the center of the galaxy. It's 0.1 parsecs. Okay. And you can um, do some quick calculations to realize, oh, that's that's in the accretion disk of the black hole. Right. Um, so you can so, you can directly measure the accretion going into the black hole. And I uh, see. So uh, all the all the matter that's swirling around it all sort of has a, a strong magnetic field around it. Exactly. A, a strong magnetic field around it. So the um, the black hole is um, powered by eating the material around it. Sure. But one key ingredient that was missing until now is the knowing anything about the magnetic field around the black hole. Uh-huh. Because this can seriously change things. It can steal the angular momentum from things, or it can shoot things out in jets. So it can completely change the picture, whether or not there's a magnetic field and how strong it is. And we worked out um, the value of the magnetic field, which I don't know if the jargon is of any interest to you, but it's a few hundred gauss okay. at the event horizon of the black hole. So how does that compare to the Earth's magnetic field? Well, the Earth's magnetic field is about half a Gauss, so this is a few hundred times more than that. Right. And the interesting thing with this is, well, our the black hole at the center of our galaxy is not super bright, and that was kind of a mystery. Okay. Um, but what happens is that when the material is falling into the black hole, it becomes ionized, and this magnetic field actually slows down the accretion process. Right. So it's kind of like... Um, it's controlling the diet of the black hole. It's putting a break on things. Exactly. So without this, the black hole would just be gorging on all the material around it. But this kind of regulates it. Okay. And uh, that's the first time we've been able to measure something like that. Which wow, is that's, cool. that's really, really cool. Also, uh, I think you mentioned this, but um, the pulsar in question that you were looking at, uh, I believe it's what you call guys call a magnetar. Yes. Um could you maybe go into that a bit more as well? Because magnetars are some of the most fascinating objects, I think, in the in the universe. Yes, well, magnetars are the highest magnetic field pulsars. So they have uh, values of the magnetic field that are 100 trillion times stronger than that of the Earth, something wow. like that. So yeah. they're seriously magnetic, and they're 100 to 1,000 times more magnetic than a typical pulsar. Okay. Um, and there's maybe 20 or so of those, 20 or 30 of those known. And until a few years ago, all of them were seen to emit in X-ray and gamma rays exclusively ah. and never visible in radio. But they have recently been seen to be visible in radio, a handful of them. In fact, this is the fourth one just. Wow, okay. So this is quite a rare object. We only know four objects that are magnetars visible in the radio. Yeah. And it just happens to be in the galactic center. So you guys hit the uh the pulsar jackpot here. Exactly. <laughs> okay, wow. Um and so so now you've you've got an estimate of the strength of the field around the the black hole and wh- wh- where do you go from here? What's the sort of the next steps to uh, in terms of studying this and uh in terms of looking maybe for more pulsars around the black hole or Yes, well the main motivation for trying to find pulsars in the galactic center is to uh measure the the weird effects of gravity that you get there. So all of the predictions of Einstein are magnified hugely in the galactic center because basically because the mass of the black hole is so huge. It's mm-hmm. four million times the mass of the sun. 
Yeah, well. So everything gets magnified by that factor of 4 million. Sure. It's also condensed into a small area, so it gets magnified by that, that factor as well. Right. So all these effects that would be small in the solar system or or impossible to even see in the solar system or in mm-hmm. any lab on Earth are hugely magnified and measurable there if you have a pulsar close enough to it that you can use it as a tool. So that's why we've done so many surveys of there. And that's why we were excited to see this because our models of the galaxy and how we think we understand things tell us there should be a thousand pulsars within one parsec of the black hole. But uh, we had found precisely zero. Yeah, yeah, I've heard until of the beginning problem, of the year. Yeah, that no one can find the pulsars near the center. And as I said, there's many reasons why they might be obscured and blocked. But this uh, finding this one, and particularly something as obscure as a magnetar, um, really gives us hope that th- we, they're there and that we can find them. Yeah, sure. If you found one of the, the rarest ones, then the, the more common ones have to be there, hiding there somewhere. Yes. And uh, during our surveys where we weren't finding anything, we were trying to come up with reasons why that wasn't the case. Right. And and it was educated guesswork. But now we, we've, um, we've seen that we've been able to see this magnetar, and some of these obscuring effects are not as strong as we thought. Okay. Uh, and now we actually have a handle on that. So you can fine-tune your observations to sort of better look for the, exactly. the puzzles that should be there. So we had been um, drifting towards higher and higher frequencies yeah. um, because these uh, obscuring effects are kick in at the low frequencies. The problem is is that pulsars aren't as bright at high frequencies. Mm-hmm. I see. So you have to try and find the middle ground. Right. I think we're zeroing in on that. Okay, great. All right. Well, thanks very much, Evan. That was really interesting. And... Um, Maybe hope to see you sometime in the future on the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for that, Indy. Now we have Mark talking to Dr. Alvaro Sanchez Monray about high mass star formation. I'm interviewing Dr. Alvaro Sanchez Monray, who's mm-hmm. just done a colloquium here at uh, JBCA for us. So welcome. Uh, nice to be here. And uh, you're working, if my pronunciation is not too bad, at the Osservatorio Astrofisico di Arcetri. Yeah, is that right? In perfectly. Italy? In, yeah, it's a place in Italy. It's uh, involved in the INAF, in the Instituto Nazionale di Astrofisica, the National Institute of Astrophysics. And this observatory, Astrophysical Observatory in Arcetri, is located in Florence, in a beautiful city. You must go there to visit it. And it's interesting that the observatory is located at only 400 meters of distance with respect to the House of Galileo. So really, we wow. have the keys of the House of the Galileo. We can enter it and see the place where he was sleeping. <laughs> it's a nice place. Yeah. Presumably the observatory, though, wasn't there when he was... No, uh, no. <laughs> in fact, the, the main observatory at that epoch was in the center of the city because the city was much smaller. Mm-hmm. So he, he was living way of the central part of the city but now the city has been uh, growing and the observatory has been displaced a bit of, from the center of the city and now it's located close to the house of Galileo. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm sure he would have enjoyed using the, uh, <laughs> the observatory's <laughs> facilities. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so what you work on is, is actually then star formation. That's what you were telling us about today and particularly high mass yeah, star uh, formation. Yeah, it works. During my PhD and now during my postdoc, I'm currently a postdoc in Archetri, I, I work on star formation, but mainly on the formation of high-mass stars. High-mass stars are those stars that have masses 6, 8, 10 or more times more ma- massive or 
greater, higher than the mass of our sun. So they are really huge stars. So we, we are studying them because it's not clear how, how the formation of these stars occurs. Okay. Well, I'm, uh, I was learning a lot from this because I normally study stars which are dead. <laughs> I <laughs> so the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> this is going back to how they're born. So when we talk about low mass stars, as you started off, how do we understand their formation? You were talking about the different stages of evolution that they go through. Yeah, in simple words, what we can think that the star forms from a large molecular cloud. So it's like a cloud, like those that we see in the sky, but it's not in the sky, but in the interstellar medium, in the universe, in the space. And it's really huge. It contains dust, particles of dust, like the dust that we can see in our houses, but a bit larger. And simple molecules, some of them are hydrogen, molecular hydrogen, um, CO, so monoxide carbon, uh, ammonia, so there are some simple molecules in this gas. And this cloud, due to some mechanisms, probably the explosion of a supernova or some interaction, this gas becomes uh, altered, affected, and then it starts to compress, to contract, to collapse, and then in the center of this cloud that is collapsing, uh, appears uh, a small core condensation that it's really dense and really hot and then it will become a star. So we have we start with a large cloud that collapses, contracts until we have a small condensation that will be a star. And surrounding this star during all this process, it's interesting that this material of the of the cloud as it falls to the center to the protostar what happens is that it is concentrated on a plane uh, surrounding the, the star and in this plane what we obtain is a disk and from this disk what we obtain is the planets, the formation of planets. So we can, uh, understanding the formation of stars, we can also understand the formation of the planets and comets and asteroids. So when you were first talking about the low mass stars, you talked about the spectrum, so the amount of energy that we're receiving at different wavelengths. Yeah. And then what was it about the high mass stars that sort of defied the classification applied to low mass stars? Yeah. In, about in, Regarding low mass stars, what happens is that they form so slowly that you can, you can make a picture of each evolutionary states in the formation of this low mass star without any problem because they evolve really slow but for high mass star this is the opposite they form really fast so if what happens in low mass stars is that you can take a picture when the cloud is huge so we, you will see the cloud then you can take a picture when the the cloud is more compact and it's forming a dense, a dense core and then you will see this dense core. Then you can take a picture when the, this dense core is associated with a disk. So the protostar is associated with a disk and then you see the emission of the star and the disk and then in the end you can see the, the emission of the disk and the planets around the star. For high mass stars, what happens is that the star form so quickly that when you have the, the cloud that is collapsing, contracting to the center. In the center, you have already formed a star, but in the surroundings, you still have 
enough material to continue to continue the creation. So you have the star that start with the disk and the star with the planets, while this is still embedded in in the large cloud. So if you are taking pictures, you are always seeing the cloud, the cloud, the cloud, and the cloud. So you cannot see the details. You have to use different techniques, techniques, not only the the spectral density distribution that traces the, this different emission, but in this case only the cloud. So you have to to use interferometers or telescopes to go inside and see the details of the stars that are forming within the cloud. Okay, that was going to bring me on to the next question actually, which was how you make observations of these star-forming regions? Is it mostly infrared? Yeah, we cannot use optical telescopes, so the more common telescopes like uh, any people can have uh, in their houses, because the mission of the stars that are forming within the cloud is highly obscured, absorbed by the dust, and then we cannot go inside the dust and see the, the details of what is happening there. So we need to use infrared observations, infrared telescopes, but not only infrared, but we have to move more to the red part of the spectrum, so to the radio wavelength. So we are observing in millimeter and centimeter wavelength. So the same frequencies that you use in your radio or in your TV are the same frequencies that we are using to, to observe inside these clouds to see what's happening and how stars are forming. Okay. So then you were talking about uh, observing different kinds of molecules, so different materials that are inside these disks. How do you know when you're looking at this molecule or that molecule, and what does it tell you about the star that's forming? Yeah, the, if we think in the, the emission that we can see with our eyes, this is mainly continuum emission. So it's all the emission at different frequencies that is processed all together and forms the white light or yellow light or these things. But we can, if we can use a spectrograph or a prism, we can separate the emission, this white light that we are seeing in different frequencies. Is, this is the same like the, how, the rainbow. Mm -hmm. So we can see that the white light is in fact a, a combination of red, yellow, green, blue. And if we can even separate more this emission, we will see that all the yellow light is not yellow, but has is yellow, but we have at some specific frequencies an increase of in the emission, and these frequencies are associated with the presence of molecules or of atoms or ions in the source that is producing the the light. So by knowing at which frequency we are seeing this increase of of the emission, we can determine which molecule is. And then we can say, okay, this frequency is associated with ammonia or with hydrogen or with SIO with different molecules. And then each molecule uh, can be used to, to trace different parts in the formation of, of a star in the gas that it's forming a star. Because uh, while simple molecules such as hydrogen or ammonia or bit more complicated than 2H plus that it's two nitrogens and an ionized hydrogen atom together. So these molecules uh, are emitting emission when they are uh, associated or they are lying in the dense gas. So by observing this species, what we see is the dense gas. If we use other molecules such as SIO or other a bit more complex HCO plus, 
what we see is the outflow and the, so emission that is not tracing the, the large cloud or the dense condensation, but emission that has been ejected at high velocities from the star. Because during the process of formation of a star, we, we not only have a disk, but also ejection of matter perpendicular to, the, to this disk. So the process of formation is a bit more complex than what I explained before. But these this molecules tracing the outflows, we know that they trace outflows because they can only be produced in the chocks. So this ejection of matter chocks with the, with the dust grains that are in the cloud, and this chalk permits the production of these other molecules. And then if we see this molecule, we are pretty sure that they are associated with ejection of matter and outflow. And then by studying different molecules, we can trace different parts of what is happening inside the molecular cloud. Okay, so it's like a different way of making the picture, I suppose, rather yeah. than uh, just saying, well, it's over here or it's over here. You're using those different materials to unpick the different parts of the, yeah, it's of the cloud. Yeah, it's like if you are taking a picture of for example, of a rainbow, and then you put a filter in your camera with only a, a yellow filter, and then you will only pick the yellow part of the rainbow. And if you pick, if you put a blue filter, you will only see the blue part of the rainbow. And then you can combine all these different pictures that you have to understand what's happening. That in this case is the presence of a rainbow or formation of a star. Okay. So now we're sort of building up this picture. You've got the disk, and then these these jets or outflows are coming from two. Parts are they going sort of yeah, like it's a, during up and down? The point is that uh, due to the collapse and the this large cloud can be rotating, so it has a, a movement, so it rotates. And if you contract all this emission, the the rotation in in the gas that is more compact is higher than the rotation seen at large scales. And this is due to the conservation of angular momentum. It's like in uh, an ice skater that it can start to, to turn. And if he opens the, the arms, he will rotate slowly. And if he uh, put the, the arms close to the body, then it starts to rotate faster. So it's sim it's the same effect. So the conservation of angular momentum. And uh, during this process of accretion and conservation of angular momentum, what happens is that if all the material try to, to reach the central part of, of the condensation of the star, you can make some numbers and what happens is the angular momentum, the, the rotation velocity is too high and then the material does not, does not fall to, to, to the center, but is uh, ejected uh, to another part. So in the end, th there would be a problem if only accretion was involved in the formation of a star. And the solution is that this ejection of material permits to, to eject part of this angular momentum uh, allowing the material to continuously be accrete and collapse onto the central part and form the, the condensation. And this ejection of material, these outflows are typically found to be perpendicular to the disk of the, to, to the plane of the disk. Okay. So that's sort of a giveaway of a star formation. Yeah. Which is another thing I was going to ask, which is, um, how then, when you're just looking around the sky or doing a survey, how do you identify what is a star-forming region or some star oh, form? Nice question. <laughs> <laughs> we can think about the first surveys that were done historically to, to, to identify these regions, and they were majorly done in infrared wavelengths. They observed 
at far infrared wavelengths at 100 microns, they did uh, an observation of the full sky. There is a satellite called IRAS that made this this work, and they found this satellite found a number of strong sources in the infrared. And if this source is only detected in the infrared, and you use another telescope in the optical, and you point to the same place in the sky and you see nothing, it means that the emission associated with this object is really cold. So the temperature may be as low as 10 Kelvin, so minus 260 Celsius degrees, so it's really cold. And the the clouds that are forming star, stars are in fact dense structures and cold structures with temperatures of 10, 20, 30 Kelvin. So if you know that there is a a, so, a source emitting strongly in the far infrared, but not in the optical, you can say, okay, this seems that it, it could be forming a star. So let's check with other tracers and see what is happening there. And then the next step is to use, for example, some lines, some the observations of some molecules. And one of the most used is the CO, so one carbon and one oxygen. And if you point to, to, toward this infrared source and you see that there is a large amount of CO emission, of molecular emission, you can say, okay, it's cold and it's associated with molecular gas. So it seems that there could be a molecular cloud there and then probably something is happening. Then you can start to observe it at different wavelengths in the millimeter or infrared, as I said before, or, or other molecules. And then you start to, to find details in this large structure of infrared emission or CO emission. And then you can be sure that if there, there is star formation ongoing or not. Okay. Like a detective. <laughs> yeah. There. So when you've been doing these observations fairly recently and choosing a certain sample of these sorts of sources what kind of things or features have you found in the high mass star forming regions yeah if you are interested in in searching for massive star forming regions instead of low mass star forming regions you have to take into account different aspects and one of them is that the the mass that you can derive from the for example the co molecule for the cloud that you are observing is a huge mass so if you find an object and it has only 10 solar masses, probably it will fragment and in the end it will only form stars of one, two solar masses or low mass stars. But if you observe this object and you see that the mass is 1,000, 10,000 solar masses, then you can say, okay, it seems that at some point it, or maybe now it's forming stars, so it will form stars. Other things that you can check is the, the presence of H2 regions, for example. And these H2 regions uh, are produced when you have a star, a star that is already formed, so a star like our sun, but more massive. Uh, this star produces a large number of ultraviolet photons, so photons, high energy radiation. And these photons interact with the, the material of the cloud. And when they find or interact with a molecular hydrogen, for example, what they make is to split 
these molecules of two hydrogens in two separated atoms of hydrogen. And then another photon can achieve this atom of hydrogen and can ionize. So you separate the central proton, proton of the hydrogen and the electron. So in the end, what you have is like a cloud of ions, of ionized material. And this is the, the H2 region, a region of ionized hydrogen. And these regions are only associated, if they are associated with young objects, are only found if the star is massive enough, because a star like our sun does not produce enough ultraviolet photons to ionize the medium. So if you know that there is an H2 region, you are you can say 100% sure that it's forming massive star. There are other signposts of massive star formation, like hot cores and several things. Well, yeah, I guess the interesting thing is how the, the details are telling us about what's happening. So I know you have these um, very, very dense cores that you're looking at, and also you were talking about having some excess of the radio emission that you were seeing, something uh -huh. that was more than expected. Yeah, this is a final result that that we have found. And regarding the, the these H2 regions that we were talking about, if you know the the type of the star that is producing the H2 region, you can calculate easily the the number of atoms of hydrogen that can be ionized. So you can say, okay, if I have a star that is 20 times more massive than our sun, this star will be able to ionize 1000 atoms. I just... Uh, if you, if I have a more massive star, this star will be able to ionize certain number of, of atoms. And then you can compute the maximum number of atoms that you can ionize for each, uh, for every luminosity of the star that it's being formed. And what we found is that if we compute the, the, uh, the number of atoms that are ionized for a certain luminosity, for a large number of objects, this number of atoms were well above the maximum limit. So it's strange because how can a star ionize more atoms than what it should ionize? So what's happening here? And it's not clear. We thought that maybe there were some, some problems with our observations, but we checked them and it seems it's okay. Uh, and in fact, there are other groups that are starting to find the same results. So it seems that it's a thing, a sure thing, it, something is happening there. And probably it's related with the theory that we are using now. So this maximum limit of photons that we are computing probably is not well computed. So maybe we have to, to improve our knowledge, our models, and see if this maximum limit can be affected by other effects, such as the, the accretion that proceeds or other effects associated with the formation of stars. And then if we are, we can investigate these and we can then find the solution of the, this excess of radio emission that we were finding. And did you say it could be something to do with the narrow angle or wide yeah, angle the, of the, there is, the outflow jets? Yeah, instead, instead modifying the models, we can think another alternative <laughs> that is the, the so-called flashlight effect. And what it, what it means is that, uh, if the, you have a, a region that is not homogeneous, so you have some holes in, in this cloud that is forming the star, part of the radiation 
that is produced by the already formed star can escape through these holes and we cannot detect them. So probably we are saying, okay, we have a, a star of 1000 solar luminosity, so 1000 times more luminous than our sun. It should produce 10 to the 40 photons uh, per second. So it should be able to ionize 10 to the 40 atoms of hydrogen. But what we are seeing is that it ionizes 10 to the 45. So five orders of magnitude more than, than expected. Maybe what is happening is that the luminosity of this source is not 1000 solar luminosity as we are measuring, but it's more. It's 3000 solar luminosities. Then a star of 3000 solar luminosities may ionize 10 to the 45 and then everything is fine. And the problem is this flashlight effect says that, okay, take into account that if you have cavities in your envelope, part of the radiation may escape and then the 1000 luminosity is just a lower limit. And then if you take into account this radiation that has been escaped through the holes, the real luminosity is 3000 solar luminosities and then everything is clear. <laughs> but it's also strange that because in our sample, almost 50% of the sources were above this, this maximum limit. So it's strange that 50% of yeah. the sources uh, have this effect of the flashlight effect. No, it's a large number. It's interesting, but it's another thing to be taken into account. So, so changing the models or this flashlight effect, or maybe there is another solution. Let's see what's happened. Wow. Well, just to finish off then, uh, I suppose that leads on to the observations that will happen in the future. Uh, you were talking about already using ALMA, um, yeah. the Atacama Large Millimeter Array, um, but of course that's not actually finished being constructed yet, even though it's already working. So how are you going to be using that telescope? Yeah, the the power of ALMA, of, this lar of the largest observatory in the world, is that we will be able to observe tiny details in the formation of the stars with a high sensitivity. So, for example, now with the E-Merlin, for example, the, the, the array that is located here in the UK, we can obtain tiny details of everything. The problem is that the sensitivity is not high enough. So if you want to, to, to search for a disk, for example, detect the, how the disk is formed around the star and how the planets are forming inside this disk, and you use E-Merlin, what happens is that the mission is so faint that maybe you can observe the spatial scale of a planet, but you will not detect them because your noise is high above the, the noise that you should have. And ALMA uh, will permit to achieve the the tiny details, the resolutions that, for example, E-Merlin achieves, but with the, the improvement of insensitivity because we have more than 60 telescopes, while in E-Merlin, there are only six or seven telescopes, so 10 times more. And thanks to, to these tiny details, so this high resolution and the high sensitivity, we, we're, we will be able to, to search for, for this disk or the planets that are forming around the stars. And so when Alma would be at 100% of its capabilities, probably in a few months, astronomy is going to be a, a fascinating <laughs> science, I think. So you're going to be able to look into these smaller regions than, than ever before and yeah. see directly what's happening yeah. in some way. It's yeah, searching 
in, for low mass stars, since it's not high mass stars, but for low mass stars, you will be able to, to resolve especially the disk around the star. So you probably start to see some gaps and these gaps are indicate that there is a planet going through this gap. And then you are not detecting the, the exoplanet in the optical, like we are doing now with 800 or 1000 exoplanets that have been found, but we are detecting the planet while it's being formed. So it's the, the old Earth. We will be able to detect old Earths in other stars and in massive star formation. Again, we will be able to, now it was impossible to search for disks in high mass stars. For example, it, it was a pity because it, it it's one of the reasons that, uh, pe make people so uh, think that the formation of low mass stars and high mass stars is different because in low mass stars, you were detecting disk in high mass stars. It was not possible to detect this. So they were saying, okay, maybe if there are no disk in massive stars, in massive stars, the formation process is different or let's see what happens. But it was, it was not possible to, to, to check this. And now with Alma, we will be able to go to stars located at 10 kiloparsecs or more, uh, forming O-type stars and then achieve a resolution that permits to say, okay, this dust emission that I'm seeing is flattened and is perpendicular to an outflow. It has some kinematic motions characteristics of a disk. So there is a disk there and then probably there are also planets. Who knows? Wow. So there's going to be lots of answers coming up, but I suspect the results will also put the minds of theorists to to a great deal of work to adapt yeah. the models. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> they have to do the hard work now. Right now, there are several theoretical models that say that should be disks around massive stars. So if it's confirmed, these models are, are the right ones, probably. <laughs> great. Well, that is exciting. Thank you very much for the talk and the interview. Yeah, thanks. It's, it's a pleasure to be here, yeah. <laughs> Thanks for that, Mark. Now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other things we can't fit in anywhere else. The odds and ends. So what have you got for us this time, Indy? Well, I've got this, um, the item of news that a lot of people have been talking about and um, that most astronomers are going to find very exciting, or space buffs as well. It's that the uh, Voyager probe, Voyager 1, uh, has finally been deemed to have entered interstellar space. It was launched in 1977, so quite a while now, and uh, for, it was initially sent to just study the outer planets, Jupiter, Saturn, um, but then it just kept going, and um, and so today it's almost 19 billion kilometres um, away from, from the Earth, so it's it's basically out, left the Sun's um, so-called sphere of influence, and has been deemed by um, Voyager project scientists to be in interstellar space. So how do we know it's reached interstellar space? Well, there's an instrument on the uh, on the Voyager 1 probe called the uh, Plasma Wave Science Instrument. And what that does is it measures the density of charged particles in the vicinity of Voyager. And um, going off readings that it took in April and May this year, as well as October and November last year, the scientists figured out that there had been a almost a hundredfold jump in the number of protons that, that, that were surrounding the probe. Now, this... this had been theorized it had been theorized that they would see such a jump if uh, if Voyager could escape the influence of the sun's magnetic field and and the particle wind um the solar wind that comes comes off the surface of the sun and so they've seen this jump in pro in, in protons which means that 
effectively, um, Voyager has, has exited that sphere of influence and is now truly in, in, in the space in between stars. Well, I believe there's a kind of a bit of a debate with, among scientists about what actually constitutes interstellar space, but Tim will be discussing that and ask an astronomer later, won't he? Yeah, he will be. Uh, there has been a lot of debate. I mean, famously, Voyager has been deemed to have left the solar system about 10 times or something. Um, what makes this different? Well, as I said, the uh, the, the proton density. And um, I mean, this time, it, there's a lot of certainty on the part of the uh, of the project scientists whether it, it had always been qualified by sort of, we think it might possibly be out of the solar system before this. So... The, they, they imagine, I mean, they, they've estimated that the actual, uh, crossing of the threshold occurred on the 25th of August, uh, 2012. So it's only after taking a, a lot of data and really looking at your analysis, um, in great detail that, that, that they've managed to clearly determine that, that Voyager has indeed left the influence of the sun. Great stuff. Thanks for that, Indy. What have you got for us, Joe? So it's been a busy week for NASA in several ways. The uh, Lunar Atmosphere and Dust Explorer launched in the US this uh, past few weeks. It began a one-month journey to the moon, which will orbit for about three months. And as you might expect, it will uh, explore the dust and lunar atmosphere. Um, and it will use various new instruments uh, to do spectrometry. So that's doing chemistry of what the moon's atmosphere looks like. Um, so like lots of people, I didn't really know the Moon had an atmosphere until this interesting news, but it turns out the Moon has a sort of dusty atmosphere, which is mainly uh, generated by a sort of particles being ejected from the surface of the Moon. Um, so that's the, that's the first task of, of a laddie, or lady, uh, and the uh, I believe it's called Lady by the, uh, by the press office. The other thing that uh, is being tested in this uh, new probe is a sort of space broadband system, so a laser communicator, uh, which will connect the, the probe to the mission control, and uh, should be about five times faster than the existing deep space network, which is a radio means of communication with space probes. And so how long is Lady going to be up there for? So Lady will orbit for about three months um, doing its doing its kind of basic tests. That's a kind of nominal mission length, but these things are always a bit flexible if it turns out it's got you know, sufficient uh, means to keep going, then they usually keep going. Um, but once it's finally finished its job, they will um, essentially turn its engines off and smash it into the moon. Oh, right. So why would they want to do that? <laughs> so it's becoming increasingly common to try and smash things into the moon. Uh, so we know a lot about the moon's surface, both from uh, direct observations and from astronaut studies when they were actually on the moon. Um, but what's below the surface layer is still a bit more unknown. So there's been at least one mission to directly probe that by just smashing something into it completely uh, and looking at the, the dust and the ejector that comes out of the crater when you do that. Um, but now, um, whenever a satellite runs out, somebody somewhere will suggest smashing it into the moon just to see what happens, essentially. That sounds like great science to me. Um, so I believe the the launch of the NASA Instagram profile also was time to coincide with the launch of Lady. It certainly was, yes. And there's a a very nice first photo that's appeared on that stream. So a uh, an unlucky frog was living oh. in, a, in a pond happily, uh, little knowing that it was next to a, 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 a rocket launch pad. And when Lady launched, it was blasted up into the sky and oh. was caught on camera um, doing a sort of 
little space, and, a, a frog spacewalk, I suppose. We and can so call what it. happened to the frog? Well, we don't know for certain, but frogs can survive falling from a very great height. So it's almost certainly fine and back in a pond somewhere and bragging about its exploits to That's the other frogs. That's reassuring to know. <laughs> and this, uh, it reminds me of that story a few years ago about the space bat. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So a few years ago, a, um, a bat, which is also native to the area around the launch site, um, was spotted on a, a photograph clinging to the outside of the space shuttle. Um, it had presumably broken either a wing or a leg or something and was so quite badly injured and was sort of a sad story. And NASA spun it as a very sad story that the, the, the bat will have um, oh. either either died when it was burned up or possibly frozen if it reached very high altitudes. Gone further um, than any other bat had gone before. Absolutely. I think it's a very positive story. This bat is an explorer. And it's, uh, and it's <laughs> Did not die heroic. in vain. <laughs> exactly. I think as long as NASA don't get any stowaway alligators, they're all right. <laughs> yes. Watch this space. It might yet happen. <laughs> Okay, um, I've got some bad news for you now, guys, actually. If you're thinking of making the long trip to Mars, I'm afraid you've missed your chance, because August 31st was the deadline for applications for the Astronaut Selection Programme for Mars One. Oh, that was my plan B oh, after the PhD. <laughs> so um, do you guys know anything about Mars One? I'm a bit of a sceptic myself. I know they're uh, recruiting people or, or telling people to come and uh, apply for being a on a one-way trip to Mars. Yeah, so um, for anybody that doesn't know, Mars One's this project that's been run by a Dutch foundation with the aim of establishing the first human settlement on Mars. And um, it's going to cost quite a lot of money, as you would imagine, about $6 billion, they estimate. And uh, what's really interesting about this, I think, is the way that they're planning on raising that money is they're essentially going to turn it into this big reality TV show, which, uh, you know, I can imagine this approach may have left some scientists somewhat sceptical about what the outcome is going to be. But, you know, I'm I'm quite excited about it. I hope they pull it off, to be honest. <laughs> it is easier to go... Uh, one way than return. It's always a lot easier in these space missions. So that's well, one thing. well, yeah, the um, the people that are responsible for for Mar- the Mars One project are saying that one of the you know reasons or one of the obstacles that people have faced before in trying to plan a mission to Mars is is getting the launch technology to to the planet in order to send people back. But I suppose the other approach to that is to get people that are willing to not come back, which is exactly what they're going to do. So. Apparently 200,000 people were willing to do that. That's how many people applied for the deadline. Uh, And out of those 200,000 people, they will choose 40 astronauts and send them over to Mars in groups of four every two years. Do you know when the first launch is supposed to happen? According to the Mars One website, the first launch will be in 2022. So the first Mars settlers will arrive, or they're aiming to get the first Mars settlers there in um, 2023. Fantastic. And so what's the reaction been to all the, to this sort of news on the I imagine social media has blown up about it as usual. Oh yeah, there's been um there's been a lot on Twitter about this. Um but it's mainly focused really on who people would like to banish to Mars. Um so I think, you know, the usual suspects are there. Many politicians were mentioned <laughs> and uh, Justin Bieber um was also mentioned. Anyone you'd like to banish to Mars, guys? Possibly think of a few. Let's not go into that. I can no. think of a few. <laughs> And now for someone we definitely would not like to banish to Mars. Here's Tim O'Brien with this month's Ask an Astronomer. For this month's Ask an Astronomer, we're in a slightly unusual location. Rather than the Jogcast studio, we're sat looking out at the Lubble telescope, which I think is moving around at the moment. And I think I can just hear the sound of it whirring down. So hopefully it won't interrupt the recording too much. The first question 
comes from Derek Kilkenny Blake, and he's talking about circles and ellipses. So he says, we all know that the Earth takes about 365 days to make a full orbit of the Sun. But if the orbit was a circle and took 360 days, and then we overlaid the ellipse of the Earth's real orbit on top of that, would there be an extra bulge of the ellipse that would be about the missing two and a half days on each side? Or is it not that easy? Yeah, it's quite a complicated question, that one. (laughs) Um, um, It's not that easy, is the simple answer, but we probably better explain why. And I think to explain about the shapes of orbits, really, um, what you have to do is go back about 400 years to Kepler. Um, So in the early 1600s, Kepler, through observations of planets and their movements around the sun, which he worked on with, with Tycho Brahe, he came up with these three laws, famous Kepler's three laws, Um, And the first law that Kepler um, formulated was that the orbit of every planet is actually an ellipse. Um, So in other words, a sort of squash circle with the sun at one of the foci of the ellipse. So an ellipse has two foci, focuses if you prefer. So not right in the centre of this sort of squash circle, but just offset to either side of the centre of these these foci. So So the sun would be at one of those and the earth would go round and round it in an ellipse. So that's his first law. The second is actually that, that if you sort of drew a line between the planet and the sun and you imagine that planet sweeping round as the, as the planet orbits the sun, then it would actually, that line would sweep out equal areas in equal times. Now that maybe is a bit hard to imagine, but, but the, the way to think about it is as the planet orbits the sun, it comes um, closer to the sun at one side of its orbit and then farther away at the other side because the sun's sort of offset from the middle in this in this elliptical orbit. So when it comes close to the sun, the planet is feeling a stronger force of gravity and it speeds up. It's equal areas in equal time because it sweeps around a, a sort of bigger angle uh, in an equal amount of time as it comes near the sun and then slows down as it goes out to larger distances. Um, and the third law is all about how you relate the time it takes for the planet to orbit the sun, its, its orbital period, to the distance the planet is from the sun, the sort of average distance of the planet from the sun. And it basically tells you the square of the, the orbital period is proportional to the cube of the, of the sort of average distance of the, of the planet from the sun. So those are Kepler's laws. For answering this question, um, really it's just the first law that we need about ellipses. And I suppose go back to Derek's question, what he imagined was this sort of elliptical orbit for the Earth, so it's like a rugby ball shape, um, and it takes about 365 and a quarter days for the Earth to go around that orbit. And then he's imagined drawing a circular orbit sort of in the middle of that ellipse. So you can imagine just fitting a circle inside that sort of elliptical rugby ball shaped orbit. He's saying if that circle were a sort of 360 day orbit, would the sort of extra two and a half days be the bulges on either side from the elliptical orbit? And in fact, that's, that's not true at all, really. It's, it's, it's much more messy than that, really. And if you, one thing I think that's sort of interesting to think about is if you get this circular orbit sitting in the middle of this ellipse and you imagine that if that was circular, the sun would be at the center of it. But in fact, for the real elliptical orbit, the sun's offset to one side. And you can work out how far off to one side it would be for the real Earth's elliptical orbit. Um, And it's actually about um, two and a half million kilometres off to one side of the centre of the circle. Quite a long way. It it does sound like a big number. I mean, it's, it's... I mean, I can't even imagine what two and a half million kilometres is, but 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 in terms of the size of the Earth, it's 200 Earth diameters. So you'd have to take the Earth and shift it by 200 times its own size out to one side. So that 
is is a lot, although looked at another way, it's only about 120th of the average diameter of the Earth's orbit. The diameter is about 300 million kilometres. So, so in that sense, it's a small perturbation on the scale of the orbit. And I suppose coming back to, coming back again, just to just to finish off with with Derek's point about the 360 day circle, I thought, well, okay, well, let's let's imagine doing that. Let's take the Earth's real elliptical orbit, slightly squashed circle, not very much squashed, but slightly squashed. Draw a circle in the middle of it. How long would it take a planet like the Earth to orbit that circle? that particular circle. And you can calculate that from Kepler's laws and you get a period of 365.1 days. So it's hardly different at all from the 365.25 for the actual ellipse. So so if he's, if we go back to his question, it's not it, it doesn't get you... I think he was wondering about things like, um, you know, is the 360 a special number because there's 360 degrees in a circle? But even allowing for that perfect circular orbit, it only moves you from... 365.25 to 365.1. That's assuming yeah. I've done the maths right. <laughs> <laughs> Someone can write in and tell us if I have. <laughs> so perhaps 360 is just a convenient round number that's perhaps close to 365. Yeah, I, th- I think that might be right. I think that might be right for circles. I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure about the historical antecedents of 360 degrees in a circle, to be honest. Yeah. The second question comes from Pat O'Grady. And he has a question, again related to orbit, but this time about comets. He says, My understanding is that long period comets come from a place called the Oort cloud. Some event pushes them out of their orbit and towards the Sun and the inner solar system. When they have gone by the Sun and go off back out again towards the Oort cloud, what is it that brings them back in again? Does the Sun's influence end at the heliosphere? And if so... What is there to stop them flying on past the Oort cloud and out into deep space? Good question. So I think there's probably just a few things that we'll just talk about to, to set the scene for people who haven't heard about these things before. So these these long period comets he's talking about. So we know about things like, um, say, Halley's Comet, whose period, if I remember rightly, is 76 years. Does that ring a bell? Could be. I was too young to remember the last time it came around. I hope to see it again. <laughs> I, I did. I actually did see Halley's Comet in 1986. So I was in America at the time. So we went up a, up a nearby hill in Virginia and I saw the tail extending over quite a large part of the sky. Not very bright, but it was, it was there. So luckily enough, because I don't think I'll be around for the next one. So that's about what, 76 years. These long period comets are much longer orbital periods than that. So ranging from something like a few hundred years to out to maybe millions of years. So it's extremely long, long orbits, highly eccentric ellipses, which means, you know, very squashed circles. Um, if you can imagine them very squashed down as they come into the sun and then way back out again. And they'll go out to maybe distances of tens of thousands times the distance of the Earth to the sun, an astronomical unit. So tens of thousands of, of AU, we call them. And I suppose, again, just to give you some scale for that, in terms of these astronomical units, distances of the Earth to the sun, Neptune is about 30 astronomical units away. Eris, which is the most distant dwarf planet, is about 100 astronomical units. And these, these long period comets will go out to tens of thousands of AU. So they're a long way out from what we think about as the solar system. And in fact, if you think about what's beyond that, the nearest star, Proxima Centauri, is about 300,000 AU, almost 300,000. So we know of comets that we think go out to about maybe 70,000 AU. So they're like a quarter of the way to the nearest other star. So, you know, so that, that's the sort of extent of the orbits we're talking about. It's really 
They're really huge. And this Oort cloud um, that Pat referred to is, um, it's a hypothetical thing. We've not directly observed the Oort cloud. It's thought it's suggested to be this reservoir of comets, and many billions of comets, out to these sorts of distances, you know, out to maybe a quarter or so of the, the distance to the nearest star. And it's thought to be where these these long period comets come from in the same way that, that Pat mentioned it, that you might get a you know movement of the sun through the Milky Way, there's perturbations from the gravity of nearby stars and that or even the orbits of the comets within the Oort cloud they come near to one another and perturb one another and one could have its orbit deflected and it would you know sort of fall in into the inner solar system. So it doesn't take much to, to do that then? No, well it, it just needs to have you just need to add some energy to the orbit or or, or extract some energy from the orbit to change the shape of the orbit um and so that would be sort of happening all the time and i guess it would be you know the more extreme ones that would deviate the orbit so much that it would fall right in but it's certainly not not an improbable thing to happen and when we see these long period orbits these long period comets we see them with orbital inclinations so so if you imagine the solar system with all the planets orbiting the sun they all orbit in approximately the same plane in a sort of flat surface, if you like. Um, but these comets are often at steep angles to that plane. And so it's thought that this Oort cloud is probably roughly spherical. So it sort of surrounds the whole of the solar system and the comets can come in from any angle, if you like, so they fall into the sun. So although we haven't observed it directly, that's the best idea we have for where these long-period comets come from. And they can have all sorts of shapes of orbit. I mean, basically, if they're... If they're bound to the sun if they're what we call gravitationally bound so they're they're sitting under the influence of the sun which dominates the mass of the solar system um they'll continue to orbit they'll continue to come back time and time again and generally they'll be in elliptical orbits if you can add energy to that you can actually make that orbit become a uh, a hyperbola um, and that means that the comet would then have enough energy, it would leave the solar system altogether. It would escape the sun's influence and head off into deep space. Now, um, Pat's question really was, why when one of these things falls in, why doesn't it just head back out into deep space? Well, it was always bound to the sun. It was orbiting the sun in the Oort cloud. And so when it falls in, quite often it will still be orbiting the sun. It'll take a long time, take millions of years to come back near to the sun again, but it probably will do that for the majority of objects that we know if it comes close to another object and it has a gravitational collision with it in sense you know it doesn't have to actually hit it but it but it comes close enough that it's deflected you can gain energy from that collision or you can lose energy from that collision depending on how it and the nature of it and so you can modify those orbits so you can make things be captured or you can make things be ejected and i think probably the other key thing to say is the point that was made about the heliosphere being the edge of the sun's influence and i think this is something that you know is a misconception isn't it that uh that there is really an edge to the solar system maybe yeah. isn't is a misconception yeah yeah and it's and it's because um well it's in the news isn't it at the moment because because there's this massive argument going on about voyager one and when does voyager one reach the edge of the solar system and so you've heard this concept of this heliosphere the region of space dominated by the sun and actually what that means is it's the sun has this solar wind particles and and, and radiation that's flooding out from the sun all the time but that solar wind of particles as it spreads out will eventually slow down and be stopped by the the interstellar medium the gas that surrounds the sun that sits between the stars and it's that point is the sort of the edge of the heliosphere 
And the debate at the moment about Voyager 1 looks like it's more or less at that edge. There's debate over whether it's just crossed it or not. But that's only 120 astronomical units away from the Sun now. So remember, we were talking about Eris being 100 AU, Neptune being 30 AU, and these long-period comets going out to 70,000 AU. So these, these things are well beyond this heliosphere, but they're still under the influence of the Sun, and that's because the Sun's gravity carries on, you know, forever. <laughs> um, but, you know, if you think about, I suppose if you think about the local group of stars, think about the Sun, think about Proxima Centauri and Alpha Centauri, maybe, that little group of stars nearby, you could imagine that as you were moving away, you'd feel a stronger force from the Sun until you get, you know, maybe a bit more than halfway or whatever it might be, roughly halfway to the nearest other star when the gravity of that would start to dominate over the sun. So you can get a long way out from the sun, certainly as far as the oak cloud, quarter of the way to the nearest star, and still be under the gravitational influence of the sun, and therefore it's no surprise that they're still on these orbits that may well lead to them eventually returning. But Voyager, is that ever going to come back? Oh, Voyager, no, no Voyager's on a, on, a, on a hyperbolic orbit, so it's right. unbound, yeah. Okay. There's often this claim made that at the speed of Voyager it's going to... It would reach the nearest other star in, is it 70,000 years, I think? Um, but of course, it's not heading directly towards the nearest other star. So we can look forward to that argument about when it leaves the solar system continuing for thousands of years. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> when it leaves the gravitational influence of the sun. Absolutely. It's all about cosmic rays, isn't it, this heliosphere? It's quite an interesting thing to follow, is the looking at these cosmic ray particles which came from the sun and measuring the sort of... Uh, numbers of them uh, hitting the spacecraft and you can sort of tell when you've reached this boundary between the region where there's the sun's cosmic rays and the and the sort of external interstellar medium. Yeah, it's fantastic. You can still send information back. Yeah, yeah. No, it is. It is very, very exciting stuff. The third and final question comes from great old Mac and this one's about planetary nebulae. He says, many detailed images of planetary nebulae have streamers of material and they are described as knots. Are the knots and streamers really super comets in the equivalent of the Oort cloud for that star? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, we picked, we picked all the questions that have this orbits, comets, Oort cloud theme for this week. I mean, I don't know whether people have seen these pictures of things like um, the Helix Nebula or the Ring Nebula or, or, or these, these planetary nebulae. Very beautiful pictures. Um, basically, they show this um, shell of gas that surrounds a white dwarf star. So these are the sort of end points of the evolution of stars like the sun. So eventually in, you know, several billion years, the sun will run out of hydrogen fuel at, it, at its core and it'll expand to become a red giant. And then a little while after that, it'll actually expand even farther such that the outer layers of the star are so far from the, from the middle that they're very loosely bound gravitationally to it and they can effectively be pushed off out into space by the force of the radiation that's coming out from the centre. And so what happens is all the outer layers of the star pushed out into space, leaving behind the exposed core of the star, something maybe the size of the Earth or something, um, where all the nuclear reactions used to take place, and that's, that's the white dwarf, hot, exposed, dead core of the star. But that hot core has all this ultraviolet light. It, it ionises this outflowing gas, the outer layers of the, the original star, and they shine, and we see that as this planetary nebula. Nothing to do with planets, really, just something that looked a bit like a planet when people first saw them in, in telescopes, you know, a few hundred years ago. 
So actually, when you look in detail at these at these these shells of gas, they often have these um, these knots, these sort of bright condensations, if you like, sort of blobs within the shell. And then you can even see on these blobs that they've got these tails sticking out from them, away from the central star. So they look like comets, actually, um, you know, with the with the tails pointing away from the star, just like comets' tails point away from the sun. And so the question here is whether actually those knots, often called cometary knots because they look like comets, may in fact even be comets. You know, maybe they are comets in the Oort cloud of the star that evolved, became the red giant and then ejected its outer outer layers to become the planetary nebula. Now, in fact, that has been discussed. The sizes of some of these planetary nebula are not dissimilar to the size of, say, the Oort cloud around the sun. So it's not a not unreasonable. It has been discussed. It has been thought about, um, but generally it's not thought to be the best explanation. One of the reasons is that where we've been able to try and estimate the, the masses of these knots, there's something like the masses of our planets, so the, you know, of order of Earth mass type things, whereas comets, as, as we know them, are much less massive than a planet. Now, I know that great old Mac um, said that super comets, so mm-hmm. actually, you know, that in that sense, that would have to be right. They'd have to be extremely large comets um, but there's certainly nothing like the comets we we know now the best explanation you know that i think most astronomers would agree on for what these things actually are is the thought to be instabilities in the gas that form as it's pushed out from the central star so as this planetary nebula is expanding and growing there's a couple of things that go on one is that the actual radiation from the central white dwarf eventually when it's exposed and earlier than that as well, that radiation pushes stuff out. That can effectively, you know, it crinkles the the layer of gas that's been pushed out. It's called a Rayleigh-Taylor instability. Same thing you'd see in a, if you try and, I mean, you've seen this done, but if you've got a, a glass of water and you try to, you poured a layer of sort of oil in on top of it, it's a sort of unstable situation that, that can result in this, the heavier stuff sort of penetrating through into the water in sort of streamers, that surface becomes unstable and you get these sort of streamers of material that flow down through. That's called the Rayleigh-Taylor instability. And that same instability acts in these so-called ionisation fronts as the, as the ionising radiation pushes out through the, through the gas. The other way, the other thing that's pushing is uh, actually the, the particle wind, so the gaseous wind from the star. So it's... We, we seem to see a sort of slower wind initially, and then as more of the hot core gets exposed, the wind increases in speed. And so the fast stuff runs into the slow stuff that was previously ejected, and that's also unstable in a similar way, and that would produce these clumps and and streamers as the gas flows past the clumps, and it sort of drags out these cometary tails. So that's the best explanation, but but, you know... I have to say that, you know, that, 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 that option of super comets has been discussed, um, but not generally thought to be the best explanation. So the knots are probably gas then rather than sort of solids. Yeah, yeah. I think the knots are basically condensations of gas or so denser gas than in the, in the surrounding regions. I mean, there's lovely observations of these things with, you know, particular high resolution with things like the Hubble Space Telescope where you can see the front surface of these sort of blobs of gas all ionised by the ultraviolet light from the star. So you see this sort of ionised front and then you see the 
the gas that sort of sort of boiled off almost off the clump being sort of dragged out behind it, yeah. and you can sort of measure the flows of material in that, and in, you know in some detail. So the a nice little bit of physics in these in these planetary nebulae. Yeah, I might have to try pouring some oil onto water as well to create some streamers <laughs> of my own. Google Rayleigh Taylor instability. See what you find. <laughs> Thank you very much to Derek Kilkenny Blake, Pat O'Grady, and Great Old Mac for the questions. And if you'd like to send in questions to be answered next time, you can do so via all the usual channels. Thanks for that, Simon Mark. Now on to the feedback. So, Indy, I believe you have a postcard for us this time. Yeah, we've got a postcard from Turkey, um, so I'm just going to read it out to you guys. Salam Lama, Jodcasters. Enjoying hot days and clear nights, great for meteor watching, here in Fethiye. Missing the August extra, but everyone needs a holiday, and looking forward to September's broadcast. As ever, Neil Hickling. Thanks a lot for that, Neil. I hope you enjoyed September's uh, September's broadcast, and I hope you enjoy um, our September extra this month. Uh, please do keep sending your postcards in. We always love to receive them. It brightens up our cloudy days in Manchester. And uh, and we'll definitely post um, pictures of them on, on Twitter, so um, keep them coming. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for that. Joe, have we had anything on the forum? We have. So on the forum, Mark C says, Great to hear some of what was presented and get a feel for what went on at NAM, the National Astronomy Meeting, this year. Shame we can't see Christina's Jodcast poster, though. Well, that's a really good idea, Mark C. Thank you very much. We'll try and put that up on the Facebook page. We absolutely will. So on Twitter, we've also had a tweet from Chris Kirkland, who says he's just listened to the September Jodcast and the presenters changed, but the quality remains excellent. That's a great compliment, Chris. Thank you very much for that. I'd also like to say thanks to all the Twitter users who have uh, tweeted us to let us know about the problems we've been having with our website recently. Um, So I'd like to apologise for anyone who's missed out because of that. And I'd just like to let you know that we're all back up and running and hopefully there shouldn't be any more problems. And as always, thanks for the retweets and follow Fridays on Twitter and thanks for all the likes and welcome to our new followers on Facebook. And if you'd like to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. On the forum at forum.jodcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. And on Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us post. The address is on the website. Thanks to Dr. Alvaro sanchez Monray and Dr. Evan Keane for the interviews. The editors were Adam Averson, Indy Leclerc, Kat McGuire and Mark Perver. The producer was Kat McGuire. Until next time, jod on. on.